0: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, presenting a replay of an oldie but goodie, our history of the American Museum of Natural History. Now, we are representing this show, which we first recorded back in 2010- because the museum is one of several cultural institutions reopening their doors this month after a long period closed due to the pandemic lockdown. And over the next few months, we'll be presenting the stories of other cultural institutions, but you can now visit again. Now, for more information on the American Museum of Natural History, on opening hours and health and safety guidelines, please visit their website, amnh.org. Now, because we did record this show so long ago, some of the information is outdated. For instance, the museum now has 45 exhibition halls and over 34 million specimens and counting. So we re-edited the show a little bit and stay tuned until the end, where I'll have some brand new information to share.
2: Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. And I'm Greg
1: Young. This week's episode, we're going to talk about one of New York's most treasured public institutions, the American Museum of Natural History, that's located on the Upper West Side, right off of Central Park between 77th and 81st Street. But New York's Natural History Museum is one of the world's most renowned, has actually been at
2: the heart of all the natural sciences since its inception in the 1860s. And I would dare to say that in telling the history of the museum, it's more than just talking about how the structure was built or how the people got together to pass a charter, but it's also about telling the story of how different collections were even collected and acquired in the first place. It's a story of exploration and a story of science.
1: We will be talking about things in this podcast that are so old, that are millions of years old, and some of them are not even of this earth. So grab your shovel and join us for our night at the museum. The American Museum of Natural History, as I mentioned, is on the Upper West Side, located in a park that we call today Theodore Roosevelt Park, though it was called something else earlier in its history. The building itself is actually a collection of several buildings, and they're all of different architectural styles, and many of them are from the early days of the museum. Some of them are brand new additions, uh, so it's a schizophrenic architectural structure here. Inside the museum houses thirty-two million specimens and artifacts.
2: Is that it? I say in jest, of course. I mean that's impossible to even get your head around.
1: Thirty-two million. Thirty-two million. But that's you know like probably little
2: specimens.
1: Yeah, I mean butterflies and everything up to you know gigantic you know dinosaurs. There are 36 permanent halls and research labs within the complex here. So it's a research institution at the same time as an exhibition space. Yeah, there are many areas that aren't open for the public. It's still used as a science facility as well. Now, So this brings up then what is a natural history museum? The study of natural history is a study of natural objects biological some of the early notions of natural history even included anthropology and right. of course archaeology of uh, all different kinds ethnography ethnography yes
2: a study of people, a study of cultures, and this museum has quite a collection of that
1: this was new york 's public display of scientific progress so not even it 's america 's display i mean it 's the American Museum of scientific progress. The idea of a natural history museum branches out from this 18th century European idea called the cabinet of curiosities, Mm -hmm. which would usually be housed in a university, but would occasionally be open to the public and would show off various animal specimens, things of scientific note that would be interesting to the public.
2: The very term scientific cabinet just conjures up images of jars of formaldehyde and and alcohol. It,
1: It sounds a little stuffy like a dusty university but in fact by the early 1800s Philadelphia and Boston would have like big academies of natural history a society of natural history
2: Yes, Philadelphia had established its Academy of Natural Sciences in 1812, and Boston had the Boston Society of Natural History in 1830. The Smithsonian Institution was also established in 1846. So, you know, what was New York doing? Wasn't it the most important financial capital of the country?
1: Well, it's interesting. There were some real attempts at establishing a natural history museum here. One of the first ones was in 1825. And it was attempted by a man with the curious name of Rubens Peel. Now, Rubens is the son of a very noted American by the name of Charles Wilson Peel, the early American painter. And actually, he's basically the father of the Philadelphia Museum. Charles named his children Raphael, Rembrandt, Titian, and of course, his son, Rubens Peel. So, you know, a lot to live up to. Rubens came to New York and decided to open a a branch museum of his own, which was called the New York Museum of Natural History and Sciences. It was actually at 252 Broadway, right across from City Hall in 1825. His museum had cases of mounted animals, would have whole walls of butterflies. There were even two mummies from Cairo exhibited there. It included, quote, several wax figures of good workmanship, fossil shells, minerals, and miscellaneous curiosities, quote. So that was that was Rubin's Museum, and how did that museum fare? Completely crushed by the, a financial crisis that happened just a few years uh, later. Sure, he ended up selling his collection, like so many other people who attempted this. He sold his collection to P.T. Barnum. Mm-hmm. Now, who but, had his own museum? Yeah, and you know we couldn't you couldn't really fairly call that a quote natural history museum, but it did have some exhibits that were attractions that were related to natural history. Barnum's Museum, of course, was burned down in 1865. Now, there was a more serious attempt at an institution for natural history. That did happen in 1836, the Lyceum of Natural History. This was a true scientific organization. It had some of the leading scientific figures of the time. So, there, so New York was really trying to establish something like that in the city. By 1836, they too had their own natural history museum, and it was at Broadway and Spring Street. In 1866, unfortunately, most of the collection was completely destroyed in a fire. In fact, one year after, Barnum's Museum had been completely destroyed by a fire. So, wiping it all out. Lots of wax figures burning. Charred fossil remains, yeah. Now, one of the most incredible Things that almost happened in New York. One of the most would have been this st- one of the strangest things had it still existed today was actually dreamt up a little bit later than this in 1868, and it was called the Paleozoic Museum. Uh-huh.
2: Now, now, this takes it's really closer to the Museum of Natural History, r-
1: right? Now, around the 1840s is when this dinosaur fever really caught on with the scientific community, it's when they started classifying some of the bones, right. the, the, the fossil remains that they found.
2: There was a sort of dinosaur rush happening, especially as, as the country was pushing westward. And people were finding dinosaur bones on ranches out in Colorado and Wyoming and different places out west. Well, as a
1: matter of fact, in 1858 was when the very first... American dinosaur was found. and It was found in New Jersey. Right. Not very far west. In London in 1851, there had been an v- elaborate display of recreations of actual dinosaurs. The designer of these was uh, a scientist by the name of Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. Now, just imagine like a, like a miniature golf course, but like with a prehistoric theme, because oh. it was literally these giant, I supposed life-size dinosaurs in a, quote, naturalistic setting, like attacking each other or drinking out of a pond. This was very popular in London. So, of course, New York, which is always trying to emulate Europe in some way during this period of time, well, they wanted one. And luckily for New Yorkers, they had this fantastic place that they could plop down a dinosaur park. They could put it, of course, in the newly built Central Park.
2: Well, sure, there was plenty of space. Might as well Put a T-Rex in there. So they were
1: planning on doing this uh, at the Central Park West at West 63rd Street, right inside the park. It would have included all these large representations of dinosaurs and, and beasts that specifically stalked the North American continent.
2: And would these dinosaurs be inside a structure, or would they be out sort of weathering the park on their own?
1: It was actually going to be designed, believe it or not, by one of the creators of Central Park, Frederick Law Olmsted. Wow. The original plan called for an iron-framed building that would lined with columns with fake vines growing down the sides of it like it had been abandoned for thousands and thousands of years and with, you know, iron frame for some reason. But, <laughs> but something that had, like, been abandoned, very Planet of the Apes. Inside there would be pools of water and these replications of habitat everywhere. And dinosaurs that would be shaped from these molds formed from real bones. So now Hawkins came over to the United States to start working on this. He set up a a, a studio in the old Arsenal. Now we're going to get back to the Arsenal in a second, but for now just focus on the fact that he is in the Arsenal in In Central Park. The Arsenal
2: over on the Fifth Avenue side, which is today sitting in front of the Central Park Zoo.
1: It's one of the few old structures that actually predates Central Park. The park was built around it. Now we're talking, you know, the late 1860s. This is the domain, of course, of William Boss Tweed, Mm -hmm. who is in power and soon the affairs of Central Park were turned over to him and his cronies, you know, so he could get some delicious kickbacks from people and give jobs to, you know, some of his some of his friends.
2: And basically, any project that was moving forward in the city had to go through Tweed in some way in order for it to be completed and funded. And had to be a
1: money-making venture for, for him. him, which, of course, this happened not to be. Mm-hmm. So he groundworked to a halt on this particular project. He even sent—this is the most violent part of the, of the podcast here, Tom—he sent some of his men into the arsenal, into Hawkins' studio, and smashed— all of the dinosaurs, all these, the all these molds that had been built, smashed them with sledgehammers, carted them outside, and then allegedly buried them in the park. That's a, a kind of a legend. We don't know if they were buried in the park or if they were taken off-site and buried somewhere else or if they were just completely decimated and they don't exist anywhere. This project never happened. The foundation had actually been built; they had started it, but over it got, on the west side. Yes, but um, had c- been covered over by by Tweed and his men, and is now completely gone. Now I mentioned the arsenal, and why the arsenal is so important for our story is it's the first real home of the
2: American Museum of Natural History. Right. But that's jumping ahead here. Right, because. In order to understand the story of the museum, we have to go back to Albert Bickmore. He is the founding father of the museum. Also in understanding the history of the museum, we have to think about how other cultural institutions at the time were being funded and founded. Think, of course, about what was happening on the other side of the park off of Fifth Avenue, where the Metropolitan Museum of Art was being founded at roughly the same time. And the biggest families, the philanthropists, who were also the wealthiest industrialists in New York City, were getting behind that creation. Many of the same people would get behind the creation of the American Museum of Natural History.
1: Their histories would be very closely entwined, at least for these very early years.
2: So I just find it kind of ironic that Bickmore, the man who was actually the founding father of the museum, didn't come from a rich or powerful family. Instead, he came from a small coastal town off of Maine. He studied chemistry and geology at Dartmouth. And after graduation, he started working at Harvard with the zoologist Louise Agassiz who was running the um, Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology had founded that in 1859. Agassiz was was famous, he was a bit dictatorial. Bickmore started raising some eyebrows because he was talking to other people who would come to visit the lab, you know, about, isn't it ironic, you know, that perhaps the country's best Museum of Natural History is all the way up here in Cambridge? I Mm. mean, shouldn't be in the country's most important city? And Bickmore even went further than that. At the young age of 22, he was discussing the possibility of opening up his own museum in New York and how he wanted to help that museum get started. He started trying to raise funds so that he could go on an expedition to even build that initial collection. So finally, Agassiz had had enough, and he just basically fired him, which then released Bickmore to go down to New York and to shop this idea around uh, which landed him actually in the living rooms and parlors of many of these very rich industrialists. And this was in 1863. So this is when he's going around, he's meeting J.P. Morgan, he's meeting Theodore Roosevelt Sr., and all of these very important men. You know, I I wanted to
1: add that, uh, you know, he started this trying to piece this together like during the Civil War. Right. So, I mean... A bit tricky. Very, very tricky, but I think why it appealed to the wealthiest of New York is this was really a status symbol, Mm. this this particular type of museum, that if you lived in a city and if you funded something that was at the pinnacle of scientific progress. If you were at the forefront and you were pushing it forward, then you would benefit from it, if not directly through your own businesses, then indirectly through your reputation.
2: So once convinced, this group of influential men then drafted a letter to the directors of the city's new Central Park and asked them for a temporary home in which they could house this exhibit an exhibit of the collection that he had accumulated. And on January 19th, 1869, that same group of men drafted a set of resolutions that established the museum and chose its board of directors from, of course, themselves. (laughs) However, it still wasn't completely legal. They needed to push this thing through the state legislature.
1: Now, I was going to ask... What about Mr. Tweed? Here? Well, see,
2: that's where yeah, that's where we are now because okay. they needed to get it through Albany and Mr. Tweed at this time because remember Boss Tweed held many different positions. Many, many, yes. And at this time in 1869 he was a state senator up in Albany. So, Bickmore had to go here he, he was this convincing young man, you know, who who was an entrepreneurial type and he, who appealed greatly to these industrialists. Well, he went up to Albany to meet with Tweed. And he had a stack of introductory letters. I guess this is how you met with Tweed at the time. You didn't just sit down at a meeting without anything sort of backing you up. You had to provide him with a list of references and letters, which sold him on your importance as well, and why he should even listen to you in the first place. It's how you got your foot in the door. So a particular interest to Tweed uh, was a letter from Samuel Tilden, quite a prominent figure. And he handed him the letter from Tilden, and and Tweed said, Well then, what can I do for Mr. Tilden? So it was all about <laughs> Tilden at this point. Well, I'm
1: sure it's it's all about the men who are pulling the strings, not about Bickmore specifically.
2: Absolutely. Bickmore then rattled off something about starting a museum like Agassiz in Boston, and Tweed sort of was semi-interested in that, but it was really about Tilden. And he, he looked at the letter from Tilden, opened it up, read it, and said... All right, my young friend, I will see your bill safely through. And that was that. We don't even know what the letter said. It could have been a threat. It could have been... Uh, Did some some green bills figuratively fall out of it? (laughs) I don't know, but green bills were needed because now, even though they got it through the state legislature, they needed money. And so Roosevelt Sr. Theodore Theodore
1: Roosevelt Sr.
2: Right, the future president's father. He gave Bickmore an office in his downtown office from which he could do some fundraising. And Bickmore made the rounds again, like raising money. And within one week, he had raised $40,000 to construct the museum, which was not bad at all. But but they also needed space. So this is where it gets us back to the Central Park space, which was temporary because th- they had convinced the Central Park commissioners to let them use the Arsenal building but they had already filled up the arsenal. They had shells and skeletons and birds and fossils and beetles, a crocodile. I mean, they literally had bones, you know, <laughs> stacking up in filling up Push, these rooms, pushing up out of the earth. <laughs> and the collection was was acquiring other collections. So, and, for, and let's not
1: forget the fact that it's sitting right next to this growing menagerie <laughs> right. that's right outside, which would of course become the Central Park Zoo.
2: It's like before and after. You can see these animals and then see the bones. So in 1871, 40,000 New Yorkers signed a petition to give the museum a 16-acre piece of land. Now,
1: that particular piece of land that you're referring to was called Manhattan Square. This was a little patch of property that was between 77th and 81st Street, up here in the wilderness mm. of the Upper West Side, because during most of the 19th century, no one really lived up here. So it was purchased by the city in 1839 and basically left to fester. They always thought, well, you know, we're gonna maybe we'll put a zoo up here one day. Maybe we'll put some kind of institution up here. But then Central Park got developed, there was no real need or urgency to develop this particular land, so it was just sort of left there. After thinking about a nice place to put the Natural History Museum, one idea, for instance, was to put it in Reservoir Square. Where was that? Which was where the Croton Reservoir was, which today is where the New York Public Library is. So right. can you imagine if that's where the Natural History Museum ended up? They decided they were going to move it here to Manhattan Square. Initially, they were going to move it and the Metropolitan Museum here, and have it be one massive complex. complex, Now, the problem is, is that this area was kind of dumpy. It didn't really recommend itself as as a place to put a fine institution. There were all these farms and shanties all over the, all over the place There were pigs roaming around. Bickmore himself one day went to the place and like sat on a hill and said, quote, As I sat on top of this rock, the surrounding view was dreary, and my only companions were scores of goats. So this is where the first of many structures that would become the Natural History Museum would be, would be built. The building was designed by... Calvert Vox, and we mentioned Olmsted, but by this period of time, Olmsted was no longer in the picture. He was gone. Vox designed the initial building. The cornerstone was laid in 1874, and Ulysses S. Grant, who was still president, was there for the laying of that particular cornerstone. It's hard to see or feel where this original building was because it's so subsumed since that with other structures. If you actually want to see a part of the wall, of the original you can actually do so if you go all the way up to the top floor which is the hall of vertebra origins aka the dinosaurs and if you look for a prehistoric shark jaw like look around if you see something <laughs> that looks like a gigantic scary shark jaw behind it is actually a remaining exposed part of the original wall
2: wow. of the original building and I'm hoping that you'll put a photo of this up on the, the blog, because it it looks so funny to see this original structure sitting on that giant, of land. Well, it's
1: a completely undeveloped area around it. It's like a sliver of a building at this time, the, and it sat at the middle of the block, which the blocks had been carved up, but there was nothing else around it. Of course, there would be, like, within 10 years, some of these fancy apartment buildings would start rising up. But until then... It was on the horizon. It was the tallest thing for, you know, yards around. You could see it for blocks and blocks away. So Vox worked on the building, but I but he had a new partner by the name of Jacob Ray Mould. And I want to bring him up because I feel like what makes the original building so quirky are some of the things that Mould did. Vox is sort of responsible for the overall structure, but Mould is responsible for the details. This building has very distinctive red brick with sometimes a striped pattern, but a very, very heavy and very colorful for the day. And Mold would work on many Central Park projects and many of the buildings that were in Central Park that were built over the years, many of which are still around.
2: And Central Park itself was still being developed during the construction of the museum.
1: It was open, obviously, but there's so many elements of it that we know and love today that were just not there yet. So even though the The park itself was a very man-made, landscaped place. It, too, had that sort of rough-hewn feel, just like Manhattan Square in the area around the museum. Now, there would be many, many, many expansions over the years. I'm only going to mention one now. I'll mention a few later, and we're certainly not going to get into them all. But in the 1890s, the architect Josiah Cleveland Cady... Designed the castle-like, very Romanesque 77th Street side. This is like right. it stretches the entire length of the block and basically now dominates the block, where before it was just like a building in the middle of the block. So right. this expansion actually stretches it the whole length. This has these turrets and a very striking use of very red-tinted granite. For a time, it was actually the longest facade in Manhattan. Isn't that unusual? Because wow. really And it really is quite striking. Well, what's it's like un- a fortress. And what's unusual is because it's set back, because it's in a park, technically, so it's set back. Unlike most buildings in New York, you can really take it all in. You can stand in the middle of the block and really absorb the beauty of the building. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
0: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a houseful of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Let me go back to the opening of the museum, which was in 1877. Yes. And apparently, I guess, opened to an audience of
2: dozens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, the opening itself was quite a celebration. The problem was not the opening. The problem was the day after the opening, (laughs) when they opened up the doors, and there just weren't that many people who had turned out to come in and pay to see the collection. This is in part because of its location— it wasn't the most welcoming environment. The Upper West Side in this area was just not as developed as, as it was on the East Side, and it was hard to get people up there. 78th Street was kind of a hike. For the first year there, more people were going over to see the collection in the Arsenal. Lots more. We're still looking at just the leftovers that the museum hadn't bothered to move out of the arsenal. Then we're venturing over to the arsenal to see the real collection. And the real collection included things as well, you know, that they were really proud of, like a big fossil collection and things like that. And people perhaps just weren't really that interested in looking at fossils from 7,000 different species. It just wasn't something that they had been sold on yet. Things were withering kind of fast, including the finances of the museum. In fact, that fossil collection I was talking about, the 7,000 species, was called the James Hall Fossil Collection. It was a very important collection. Scientifically speaking, the museum had spent $65,000 on it. And they were planning to sell subscriptions to pay for that cost, uh, you know, going around to New Yorkers and asking them to get behind it. Well, people didn't even really want to donate to it. And so it was the Board of Trustees who ended up coughing up much of that $65,000, which did nothing really to help their temperament. No, I'm sure. So the Board of Trustees was beginning to think, actually, as they looked around the empty halls, that their new museum was actually something of a flop. And in 1880, they asked one of the trustees to write up a report on how to cut spending and to scale back the scope of the museum so that it could be, you know, financially viable. That trustee was a man named Morris Jessup. Now, Morris Jessup was a, a self-made millionaire with one of these classic rags-to-riches stories that climax with him making a fortune in the railroad industry um, and becoming one of New York's richest men. So he was asked to spend time with Bickmore, walking around, looking at the exhibits, understanding the vision of the museum and understanding where they could cut back. Well, after spending plenty of time with Bickmore, remember Bickmore is a very engaging Mm -hmm. salesman Mm -hmm. for the museum, Jessup instead came back to the board with a totally different kind of plan. The museum didn't need to scale back. What the museum needed to do was expand. It needed to grow boldly, uh, expanding its collection and its size, and it should change its focus away from these fossils, according to Jessup. And instead, they should look for big, flashy animals, you know, like lions, and 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 give the public something flashy that would bring them in. Headline
1: acts, basically.
2: Yeah, he wanted to sell the public on a reason to come all the way up to the museum. And the board... The Board of Trustees totally bought it, they were excited by this, and they appointed him the third president of the museum, and he would hold that position for 25 years. And if we look at the difference from 1881 until 1906, when he left... That initial building had 54,000 square feet of exhibit space, Mm -hmm. which sounds like quite a bit. But when he left 25 years later, there would be 600,000 square feet. Well, that's when that expansion
1: happened that I talked about along 77th Street, right?
2: Exactly. And they went from having 12 employees in 1881 to having 185 employees in 1906 but he also was saying that for its you know in terms of thinking boldly they had to go out and they had to actually be an active force in the collection of new animals and species for its own exhibits and research and what i find interesting is he actually turned these explorations into
1: news It wasn't just the exhibits themselves, but how he found the exhibits and going out to these very exotic places in the world. And those became newsworthy, and those drew attention to the museum.
2: From 1880 until 1930, during this 50-year period, this 50-year period is sort of referred to as the golden age of the museum's explorations. The museum funded over 1,000 expeditions throughout the world. Uh, for the purposes of enriching its collections, I think an interesting aspect of visiting this museum, it's entirely possible to walk through the halls and to look at these different animals on display, say, or skeletons and think, well, this is all very nice, and here's a lion, a collection of gorillas. Somehow the museum acquired these, and then you move on to the next exhibit and you look at those animals. But if you stop and think that the museum actually Actively acquired most of these animals through its own expeditions. It becomes much more interesting well, because there's a story behind everything. In most cases, it's their own employees
1: or or people acting on behalf of the museum, going out and on expeditions the, on, that they yes, funded, and getting these and acquiring these artifacts. And being breathlessly reported by all of the oh, newspapers sure. who are looking, were hungry for exotic, interesting stories of adventures in Africa or in the Far East. So you can't tell us about all the explorations. Do you have two or three <laughs> that you can throw out for us?
2: Well, the first major one from 1897 until 1902 was called the Jessup North Pacific Expedition. And Jessup hired Franz Boas to explore the North Pacific Rim of North America and the other side in Siberia, because he was trying to answer the question, what was the origin of Native Americans? He was trying to prove that the Native Americans had come from Siberia, down through Alaska, across the Mm Bering Strait. And so he wanted to send an expedition up to the Northwest Territories and another one over to Siberia in order to collect samples and fossils and and to study the cultures, he came back to New York with a vast amount of information and examples of their culture. And just in time, too, because this area in the Northwest Territories, uh, by 1910, much of this culture had actually disappeared. So here's another example of the museum moving in, collecting things and Preserving, which was one of their missions, was actually to preserve cultures so that it could be studied for future generations. This is, of course, somewhat controversial because if they were taking away artifacts, they were perhaps also expediting the disappearance of, of course, a culture
1: by taking a little bit of it. And we'll discuss that later, especially with the retrieval of animals. Absolutely.
2: So that was just one expedition. Uh, there was also an expedition to the North Pole in 1897 that was led by Lieutenant Robert Perry, and that would lead to the museum netting just a vast collection of animals, of polar bears, of marine mammals, of birds. Many of the things we see on display today that come from the Arctic area were the trappings of uh, Robert Perry back then.
1: Not to mention meteorites.
2: Not to mention the meteorites, the pieces of the meteorite, and also various artifacts from the indigenous people, formerly known as Eskimos Mm -hmm. up there, because he was bringing back all kinds of artifacts. He even brought with him six real live Eskimos all the way back from Greenland. Really, He brought them to New York. He brought them to the museum. He brought them to the museum so that they could be studied. Six different Inuit people. So he had hired them during his explorations, and then on the way back, he brought six Eskimos with him, including a young man named Minik. Now, the staff studied the Inuit people. They watched in sadness, actually, as many of them got sick because their immune systems weren't able to cope with the city's conditions. Uh, Three adults, including Minik's father, Kisik, and one child caught tuberculosis and died. And another was sent back to Greenland, which just left Munich in, at the museum.
1: This is sounding very ominous to me. It reminds—it's—it has shades of the Ota Benga story yes. from our Bronx Zoo podcast, where an African pygmy man was brought back to the zoo. It, I think he lived for a time actually at the Natural History Museum, and then was brought to the Bronx Zoo with this and, and this. Where strange... he was
2: then put on display.
1: Right. So I'm not liking where the story. Well, going. Munich
2: was not actually put on display. He was, in fact, adopted by William Wallace, who was the chief curator of the museum. But he was understandably incredibly upset about the passing of his father, Mm -hmm. and he was begging for a proper funeral. The staff, however, had a problem with this because here they had this body of Minnick's father, and they wanted to study it for research. So what did they do? Why? They decided to hold a mock funeral. Uh, by candlelight, complete with a coffin that was stuffed with rocks so that it would be heavy enough, uh, including a blanket over a sort of stuffed fake body. so That's just disturbing. Minnick would feel that he was actually saying goodbye to his father. Meanwhile, they took his father off to the laboratory where they reduced him to his skeleton so that they could study the skeleton, and then they put him on display inside the museum itself. Did Minnick find out about this? Well, they were trying to keep the story from him. However, the newspapers caught wind of the story, and they published plenty of stories about this, which then got back to Minnick through schoolmates who told him about it, because their parents had read about it in the papers, and Minnick was obviously really upset. And Wallace actually then pleaded with museum director Herman Bumpus for the return and proper burial of his father, but Bumpus refused, and... Um, Minnick was never able to see his father buried while he was alive. He would later go back to Greenland for several years, but returned to the U.S. in 1916 and worked at a lumber mill uh, before dying from the 1918 flu epidemic.
1: That is not how I wanted that story to end.
2: Well, if it is any comfort to you, in 1993, um, his father's remains were actually taken back to Greenland.
1: So that was a more unpleasant tale. It was one of the more unpleasant end results of one of these explorations, it seems.
2: But perhaps we should focus on all the other things that Perry did bring back. And it isn't just Perry and Boaz, but there are so many other expeditions that were happening all over the place.
1: Now, by the 1890s, the museum was actually looking to beef up their credibility in the prehistoric section in the Dinosaur Bones area. So they hired a very young professor by the name of Henry Fairfield Osborne. He was also simultaneously hired Columbia University as a biologist. Now, you know how we talk a lot about how nepotism plays a large role in uh, New York City history and some of these Absolutely. institutions? Well, he's a very talented archaeologist and scientist, but coincidentally, his uncle was also J.P. Morgan oh. and happened to be one of the chief benefactors of the Natural History Museum. Well, Osborne was actually, he was so successful with some of the work that he did here that he became the new president in 1908, and he served there from 1908 to 1933. Under Osborne, the museum became known as one of the world-class collections of prehistoric specimens, and because of his interest, it led to many fossil expositions throughout the United States. Did you know that Mr. Osborne here is responsible for naming the Tyrannosaurus rex? Wow, what power. He had also named, during an expedition in 1922 in the Gobi Desert, one of their more famous expeditions, actually, um, he also found and named the Velociraptor, which if you've watched Jurassic Park – You certainly know the name of that dinosaur. Now, speaking of Steven Spielberg movies, around this time, one of Osborne's key hires to the museum is a man named Roy Chapman Andrews. Now, Andrews worked his way up in the museum. In fact, his first job there was as a janitor in the taxidermy department. And you don't want to see what they (laughs) throw away in the taxidermy (laughs) department. Trust me. He also went to all these expeditions throughout the world, including this Gobi Desert Expedition. He, in fact, found the first fossilized dinosaur eggs. He was made a director in the museum in 1935. And the reason I bring up the Steven Spielberg thing is it is claimed unofficially that Andrews is the inspiration for the character of Indiana Jones. Another one of Osborne's hires was Margaret Mead, who was a very influential cultural anthropologist. She was hired in 1926. Now, Osborne himself, like, he did a lot of great things for the museum and helped its reputation, and it blossomed into a world-class institution during him. His own particular legacy is a little tarnished – First of all, he applauded the discovery of this thing that was called the Piltdown Man skeleton, it was supposedly the missing link, and so he wrote a huge scientific dissertation about how marvelous this was and how it was absolutely, you know, he gave it all this credibility and, and then you
2: say the missing link as in between man and, and beast.
1: Yes. Well, well it was discovered to be fake after his public paper was published. Uh-huh. Secondly, you know, he also did a lot of work in the field of eugenics and racial genetic superiority. Those kinds of things would be used for more nefarious means later in the century, unfortunately. Now, Osborne died in 1935, but one of the last gifts that he brought to the museum, or one of his last projects, was the Hayden Planetarium, which opened in 1935. Now, Hayden, Hayden must be a famous astronomer, right? I mean, they're naming a planetarium Absol- after him. Or a constellation himself. He was a banker and a former copper miner by the name of Charles Hayden. He was just really, really into planetariums. In fact, so he funded them and he gave $150,000 to this one so that they could build it. And in his honor, they named it after him, which happens a lot in this city, but he's not, he's in no way associated with the planets. One year later, another big part of the museum actually opened. It would be the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Hall. And that's actually the main entrance that you on enter the Central to Park today. West Side. Yes. Now this isn't just named after him. It's actually the state sanctioned memorial to Theodore Roosevelt. The well, there's first- that statue of him as you walk in. Roosevelt died in nineteen nineteen. The state was looking for some very elaborate way to honor him. And it made sense to do something here at the Natural History Museum because of Roosevelt's contribution to conservation, his love for the safari, and, of course, his own efforts for preserving parkland.
2: Not to mention the efforts of his father in founding the institution itself.
1: The inside would be cut, filled with murals of Roosevelt's exploits in the Panama Canal and in Africa. Then, of course, that equestrian statue outside
2: by James Earl Fraser, Okay, Greg, we are running behind on this one. So if you don't mind, I'm going to sprint forward through the 20th century. And Actually, just let's say in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of expansion happening as new halls and wings were opened in the museum, places that we know today and we love. During this period, they were putting things on display that they had also captured and brought back from these earlier expeditions. They were finally being able to mount some of this stuff. In 1964, something not so pleasant happened. Um, you see, years before, in fact, in 1900, J.P. Morgan had donated the Star of India to the a, museum. That was to say, a, a rare and precious stone? Yes, it was, in fact, a 563-carat sapphire uh, mined from Sri Lanka. It was about the size of a golf ball. Imagine a, a sapphire the size of a golf ball. J.P. Morgan had given it to, the mu- to his museum, and in 1964 some thugs, had their eye on this Star of India. Mm -hmm. They visited during the day, and they went into a bathroom, unlocked the window in the bathroom, and then came back at night and just let themselves in through the bathroom window.
1: That's, like, really easy. There's, I mean... Well, I think they've upgraded security (laughs) since then, but... No lasers or anything that they had to, like, you know, negotiate through? No,
2: no, just a bathroom window. They had maybe some negotiating inside the bathroom, (laughs) but... But they, they just sort of tiptoed through the museum and went straight for the precious jewels. They noticed the battery on the alarm protecting the Star of India was dead. So they swiped the Star of India along with several other jewels, including in the so-called Eagle Diamond. the The heist was valued at more than $400,000. The Star of India was later recovered, by the way, locked up in a locker in a Miami bus station.
1: <laughs> what a journey that went on.
2: <laughs> But the Eagle Diamond was never found. Now, can you just take us on a tour of some of the other things uh, briefly? Yeah, yeah, I I
1: I feel like we might as well, at this point, we'll go on a little walking tour of the museum or a virtual tour here. Within that tour, we can talk about the rest of the history here. As I said, the main entrance is on the Central Park west side, right. although you can also enter from the north side, which is where the Rose Center is. Now, I recommend that you enter from the main entrance, but then you, you go to the Rose Center first. Now, when you go into the Theodore Roosevelt Hall, of course, you'll see two of the most famous stars of the museum. That would be the Allosaurus, which means different lizard. And the Barosaurus, which means heavy lizard. And that's the Barasaurus is the one that's like it's lurching one hundred feet in the air. It's this very dominant set of dinosaur bones. They were first installed here in the Theodore Roosevelt Hall in nineteen ninety one, and for years they were together, locked in this eternal battle. Just this year, they've actually put a pathway in between them. So you can actually now walk in between them and you can take oh. a lot more dynamic photographs with them in the background. It's very interesting. The Rose Center is where it's is astronomy-themed exhibits. It's dominated by this gigantic sphere enclosed in a glass room. The top portion of the sphere is called the Space Theater, and that's a, it's a state-of-the-art planetarium. Where you go in and you'll see a short film that's 20 minutes or so. The one I saw was narrated by Whippy Goldberg. Now, the, the lower half of the sphere is the Big Bang Theater. and That's a short film that you sit through. That which wa- is
2: narrated by Maya Angelou.
1: Is it? Yes. They're rolling out the big names here. Now, th- don't leave this particular area without first seeing the Williamette meteorite, which is sitting on the ground. It's 15.5 tons. This will not be the heaviest meteorite you see in your trip here to the museum. No, no it will not. But then um, head off also over to the Goatsman Hall of Planet Earth, which was one of my favorite rooms, actually. It's one of the newer rooms. It's geological exhibits, and there's lots of high-tech displays, and it's a very atmospheric room. Now, most of the space and geological stuff is right here, and you'll catch all of it in this place, except for something that lies on the first floor, on the other side of the building. So we're going to head there next. And that is two rooms, one of them called the Hall of Meteorites and the Hall of Minerals and Gems. This room is, of course, one of the most guarded rooms in the whole museum. Now it is. In the Hall of Meteorites, you will see a big honking rock with two or three others around it. This is; These are pieces of the Cape York meteorite. This was sold to the museum by... Robert, Robert Perry in
2: 1894.
1: This The largest piece, it's called Anagito, is one of the heaviest objects ever moved by man. It came all the way from the Arctic. It sat in Brooklyn Navy Yards for many years. They tried to figure out how to get it across the water and mount it at the museum. Now, the big one is 34 tons. So basically, in order to display it, they had to drill supports all the way through the foundation of the museum down further into the bedrock just to be able to support it now the museum is di- is divided up into different types of halls and so instead of like going through each floor and telling you them i'll just tell you the types of rooms that you'll see one type is the cultural halls these are rooms that represent the anthropology collection of the museum such as the northwest coast indians on the first floor the south american Asian, and African people's rooms on the second floor, and the Pacific and Plains Indians on the third floors. These are some of the oldest looking rooms. Some of them have been upgraded, but for the most part, it's like you're looking into the past, not only in the cases of the things you're saying but the actual museum itself it feels like you are in the 50s and 60s they're darker rooms you you have these wooden walls these glass cases the fontage if you're into your fonts
2: (laughs) museum fonts
1: fonts are are from the how they were originally displayed in the 50s and 60s it's really two experiences in one in that respect a little stuffy And features cultures that were, at the time, were thought of as, of course, exotic cultures. And as you mentioned, what they were trying to do with these is bring very obscure cultures that New Yorkers didn't know about,
2: bring them here for
1: educational purposes.
2: And I think another one of the missions was also to preserve examples of cultures that they were afraid might be disappearing, as was the case with the Northwestern area, where Mm -hmm. they were, in certain respects, correct.
1: Now, you also have the halls, the various halls of animals, which are essentially animals that are preserved in taxidermy. You have North American mammals on the first floor, birds and Asian animals on the second floor, reptiles and primates on the third floor.
2: And the museum was really in the forefront of the development of taxidermy as well, because they revolutionized the way that taxidermy was performed in the old days. They just sort of take a carcass and stuff it with straw, say, put <laughs> stuff its skin with straw. But that would not really hold up very well. Not only was it lumpy and not very Attractive, convincing, right? right and look like a big stuffed animal, literally. It wasn't easy to preserve because it'd be eaten out by insects and things. Their new technique was to reconstruct the skeleton and even the ligaments and all the muscles and then reapply in painstaking detail uh, the skin to that structure. And so today we still have so many of these really old animals because of these innovations. Now,
1: the two most famous rooms of
2: this particular
1: type... Are of course the African mammals in the second on the second floor, but there's also a mezzanine area up, so you can actually be on the third floor and look yeah. down at these African elephants, for instance, who are the centerpiece of the room. Then, of course, the Milson Hall of Ocean Life, which is my personal favorite Absolutely. of these particular rooms, best known for a couple things here. One of them, tucked far back in the corner and shrouded in darkness, um, you have the battle of the squid and the whale, which inspired a movie. And of course, hanging overhead in the hallway is this 94 foot long, big blue whale. Now this clearly is not a blue whale that's been taxidermied. (laughs) Um, It's not been stuffed with straw. That'd be an awful lot of straw.
2: And And was actually renovated and repainted in 2003 to give it this kind of great new underwater bluish tint that is quite dramatic. I think it's also important to note that many of these taxidermied animals are displayed in not just empty cases, but they're actually placed inside dioramas, and that the museum was at the forefront of the development of the diorama, too, which meant that you weren't just seeing a mammal that was taxidermied, but you were seeing it sort of as it would appear in nature, and many times, actually, with the very same dirt, that would be brought over from the place where it was captured, plants that would have been brought over, and they would even go to such detail. They would even recreate the plants back in the in the studios. So there's a lot of artistry and also painting that went on in the background to give a sort of 3D effect and then lighting mastery that goes on as well so that there'd be no shadows that would fall upon the background. So Really, from just an art standpoint, it's really kind of dramatic to go and see these complete diorama representations. It's fabulous. Now, finally,
1: of course, on the top floor, you get the fossil, the dinosaur fossil halls. These are by far the most popular part of the museum, I would say. They are always packed, always crowded. You have 600 prehistoric specimens that are on display here, and various molds and models of different types of thing, basically telling the whole story of the prehistoric world. It's also one of the newer portions of the museum. It was renovated in 1994, 1996, and so it's one of the newest, definitely one of the most pleasant experiences. And there's also lots of windows so you can look out and it's get very- a... An- open and airy. Lots of natural light and there's a few places to set
2: even and look down
1: out at the park.
2: I find it also to be one of the most amusing parts of the museum because it's always packed with children and families. Kids love this museum and I think that that is one other aspect of it that makes it different from, say, other museums in town. There's just an energy in this museum and it's really brought on by the families and by just the delight of the children running from one animal or skeleton to the next. It's a
1: truly living museum in every meaning of the word.
2: Modern man is not for me, the movie star and dapper Dan. Give me the healthy Joe from ages ago, a prehistoric man. What has Gable got for me, or Mrs. Johnson's blonde boy Van? I want a happy ape with no English drape, a prehistoric man. Top hats, bow ties, He simply wore no ties. Bear skin, bear skin. He just sat around in nothing but bear skin. I really love bear skin.
1: And that was a little something from the musical On the Town, when our sailor heroes head to a place called the Museum of Anthropological History and dance up a storm with anthropologist Ann Miller. So we hope you enjoyed this look back at the history of the American Museum of Natural History, warts and all. So the museum has been on the forefront of so much scientific discovery and and, of course, at some periods took the lead during some darker moments in scientific history, which makes the current museum Such an interesting and enjoyable experience today. It's a a place that really learned from its history, and sometimes it's even able to present some of its more antiquated elements um, with appropriate context, while also being this rich and technologically advanced educational experience. I just wanted to share a couple more details. Now, I can't believe I didn't talk even more than I did in this show, about the Cape York meteorite. I know when people go to this museum they they go for the fossils and the elephants and the big blue whale, but I love the space stuff. And the Cape York meteorite is just simply unique in the world of objects that have been presented in museums around the world. It is 4.5 billion years old and weighs 34 tons, the largest meteorite on display in any museum. The official name of this fragment of the meteorite is On So how did this get to New York? And how did it get into the museum? Now, as we mentioned, fragments of the meteorite were discovered by Robert Perry in 1897 and then sent back to America, where they sat around for a few years at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Now in 1904, Perry's wife sold pieces of this meteorite to the museum who in turn hired a wrecking company to carefully transport the meteorite through New York Harbor to appear on West 50th Street. And then from there, it was lifted onto a wagon pulled, I imagine, quite painfully by 30 hardworking horses over to 8th Avenue and up Central Park West to the museum on 77th Street. And but here's my favorite part of the story, because at this point then the meteorite is viciously attacked. According to the New York Tribune, under the headline Huge Meteorite Moved, quote, hardly had the truckmen unhitched their horses when the heavenly body was covered with ambitious boys, all eager to dig out a piece of the metal as a souvenir. Jack knives were broken by the dozen. Now despite these little enterprising thieves, the meteorite was then hoisted into the museum and secured to the bedrock beneath the museum, where it sits to this day. But not everything at the museum is set in stone, for you can say goodbye to the monument on the eastern side of the museum. The equestrian statue mentioned ever so briefly in this show of President Theodore Roosevelt. Now, the man's legacy is, of course, hugely important to this institution. The statue by sculptor James Earl Fraser was unveiled and dedicated at the museum in the fall of 1940. It's not simply Roosevelt that's the problem here. It's, it's that on either side of his horse are the depictions of an indigenous man and an African man, to read a statement from the museum itself, quote, The statue has long been controversial because of the hierarchical composition that places one figure on horseback and the others walking alongside. And many of us find its depictions of the Native American and African figures and their placement in the monument racist. Last year, the museum opened addressing the statue, an exhibition about the history of the statue and contemporary reactions to it. We are proud of that work, which helped advance our and the public's understanding of the statue and its history and promoted dialogue about important issues of race and cultural representation. But in the current moment, it is abundantly clear that this approach is not sufficient. While the statue is owned by the city, the museum recognizes the importance of taking a position at this time. We believe that the statue should no longer remain and have requested that it be moved. Unquote. But you can't take Teddy out of the museum, of course, and in fact, it remains New York State's official memorial to Theodore Roosevelt, a man who served as governor of the state of New York and the president of the United States. For some images and illustrations of the early history, of this museum, and really the Upper West Side, visit our website, BarryboysHistory.com. You can also follow us on all the little social media things out there, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And finally, a big thank you to all of those who support us on Patreon.com, where for just a small contribution, you're helping keep our podcast here afloat. Now, we just released a Patreon-only episode of our kind side show called The Takeout, which is our after-show conversation, and we just released that last week after our two-part New Deal shows, and it's where Tom and I give you a little behind-the-scenes look at all the things that are going on here in the Bowery Boys world. So if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
0: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore,